The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of Aussie-made on-demand videos to help you look to God daily. Be challenged by a series of apologetic interviews produced by Creation Ministries International and inspired by Helping Hands, which showcases people and organisations who make the world a better place. There are new videos being added every week in the free Vision Christian Media app. Just tap the Watch tab to see the growing selection. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. As I said a little earlier, you'll want to lean in a little closer to the radio today because we're going to dive in deep to one of the great science questions of our generation and bring a response from a creationist perspective dealing with the evidence. You might have caught recent media stories of excited scientists who found amino acids on the Ryugu asteroid. Now, Ryugu is a near-Earth asteroid that Japan visited with its Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. The question is whether there is evidence that life on Earth began because the right mix of amino acids came from outer space on an asteroid. In contrast, the Christian biblical view is that God created human life. The evolutionary scientist has to believe that life on Earth came from somewhere else. And if not created by God, then it must have come from perhaps outer space. The naturalist scientists claim to have found amino acids on Ryugu and their conclusion is that it supports chemical evolution. Well, we're putting these findings under a creation microscope today, asking just how valid the science is that perpetuates the theory that life on Earth arrived on an asteroid. Get ready for a great science conversation with Scott Devlin, geophysicist, speaker and writer for Creation Ministries International. Scott, a special welcome back to 2020. Thanks, Neil. It's great to be back. Good to see you again. Scott, last time we were talking, we were talking about the James Webb Telescope, yes. and uh, very excited as you were and as yeah. I was, and I think listeners were too, yes. because it was being launched into outer space with the thought that it would find extraterrestrial life. Today's conversation takes this a little deeper again because of this latest development. It's a pretty exciting one, though, isn't it? Uh, yes. So the exciting thing about this, Neil, is that it is the it's the second time that we've ever received a sample on Earth from an asteroid. So just to explain what asteroids are, first of all, so you've got the rocky four planets on the inner solar system, and then you've got your gas giants afterwards. Um, so uh, just after Mars, so um, it's about three AU away, and AU's 150 kilometers. So you're talking uh, 300 kilometers out from the sun. You have this asteroid belt, and there's lots of rocky um, planetesimals and rocky asteroids and this is where most of our meteorites are derived from so when you hear of a meteorite landing to earth now we've analyzed meteorites before so pe- because they're easy to analyze you find them on the earth and you can get them but the exciting thing about this is we've actually gone and sent a space shuttle to um, a mission to an asteroid it's landed on the asteroid 
It's taken a sample of the asteroid, so taken some of the dirt and the dust that's on the surface and also just under the dust because it actually had a little explosion to get, get deeper. And it's brought it back all the way to Earth. So uh, this is called the Hayabusa 2 mission. And it launched in 2014. And the sample flew into uh, the South Australian desert in 2020. But it's only this year... Um, the past few months that we've started to see the release release of the results and what did they actually find? What was on this asteroid? And that's what we want to talk about today, uh, how those findings actually fit with what the naturalist science wants us to believe and we'll contrast that with what a biblical account of creation might look like if God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and of human life on earth. Now, there's a few um, definitions that might be important uh, for listeners as we go through our conversation today. There's the word panspermia. Now, give us a little insight here into what that means, because when we're talking about, you know, life on Earth and uh, amino acids arriving on an asteroid, this might be an important thing to understand. Yes. So um, the word panspermia is the idea that life came from elsewhere uh, in the universe. Life didn't originate. So uh, uh, someone that uh, doesn't believe that there's a supernatural creator God has to believe that there was a natural way of creating so somehow the things that we can see or the natural created everything that we can see which really doesn't make any sense but you have to believe that if you don't have a supernatural creator god and for a long time people believed that okay maybe this spontaneous evolution happened on the earth chemical and and the main thing we're talking about here is chemicals becoming biology so chemicals becoming life but the problem is when we look at it and we look at the complexity of life, and especially the last 20, 30 years with um, now we un- really understand how complex a single cell is, people have started to realize it, this is this is very complex. And to get chemicals to become life is very, very difficult. And um, to add to that, we've, we've learned recently that the early conditions on Earth were not susceptible to... Um, how we've created amino acids before in the lab. And so the idea of panspermia, that somehow life had already evolved or magically evolved somewhere else in the universe, and then it came to Earth on a meteorite or something like this, and then that's where we got the first cells from. So it's kind of, you push the problem of the miracle of creating life Okay, it can't happen naturalistically on the Earth, and it's really it's pushing the problem to outer space. There's another word just to bring in complicated things early, uh, so we can understand where we're going with our conversation. Abiogenesis. Now, this is the thought that uh, you know biotic material comes from non-living material. Uh, your thoughts here on. Perhaps just understanding where the naturalist scientist comes from when they're talking about uh, those amino acids and what they might be in a foundation for life. Yeah, so this word um, abiogenesis, so it comes from, there's the word biogenesis. Don't worry, I, I say, I, I was saying exactly <laughs> the same thing when I first saw it. But um, it, so biogenesis is a law that says only life begets life. Um, and really it was 19th century um and even earlier that we were looking at this, but someone who's quite famous, you might recognize the name of, 
a, a man called Louis Pasteur. He was a scientist. Can you guess what he did, Neil? Uh, pasteurization. There you yes, go. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Or maybe you already knew that. Yep. Yeah. So, and you can kind of guess it from the name. So, um, what he found, and the process of pasteurization. So, we you take your milk out the fridge and it's pasteurized, and you know it's safe to drink. You know, there's no microbes growing in there. Um, now, people used to think that when they left the block of cheese out in the pantry or the slice of meat for too long and the maggots got there or the mouse started eating it, people used to think, oh, maybe um, the cheese produced it or maybe the meat, the cheese produced the mice and the meat produced the maggots. Because they're saying, where could they come from? Because they tried experiments and they sealed, it, sealed these them in containers and still you would get um, maggots or you would get microorganisms. And... So Louis Pasteur was commissioned um, uh, commissioned by the king of France at the time, and he said, okay, I want you to find out what's happening here. And he conclusively found out that when he properly sealed the container, that obviously mice don't appear from nowhere, maggots don't appear from nowhere, even microorganisms don't appear from nowhere. So, um, so what he said was, no, you can't create life from non-life. That piece of meat or piece of cheese um, is not living. I mean, you could argue cheese. But anyway, the, the point is it's dead. The piece of meat is a dead it's, it's a dead animal. And you can't create a maggot out of a dead animal. And so he conclusively came up with this law of biogenesis, which means only life begets life. You can't have something that's not living and then it can become living. And this is a, a well-known biological law and it exists even today. Uh, but the interesting thing is, of course, if that's true, evolution cannot be true. Um, if that's true, you need some kind of supernatural intelligence to create life. So the way around this, so it used to be called spontaneous generation back in Louis Pasteur's day. But now we want to believe in it again. And so we've given it a new name. And the new name is abiogenesis. Um, and so it's against that law of biogenesis, which we know to be true. We'll come back to uh, abiogenesis and whether the amino acids that are found on the Ryugu asteroid actually could be the foundation for life. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. But when we're talking about scientists looking to outer space, looking to what might be on an asteroid... Uh, this is really important, and as you say, and I agree, very ex exciting scientific mm. discovery that they're able to do that experiment and actually get something from an asteroid. Mm. But let's just take this to where a lot of people will think uh, things are from insofar as the thought that there are thousands of alien civilizations that are out there in the reaches of space and the beginning of life could come from lots and lots of different places. That's what the naturalist wants to think. Yeah, of course, and it kind of makes sense to them as well, because if life spontaneously arose by accident on the Earth, then what's to stop that same accident happening elsewhere? The universe is very huge, or <laughs> it's massive, um, and so it fits in with that kind of thinking. So... Yeah, so pans you can see how panspermia has a bit of clout in the secularist mind. But um, but really, what we know, the actual experimental science, what we've found to be true when we look at the other planets in the solar system and when we look at the uh, many exoplanets, we've found thousands now. Um, so exoplanets are planets that orbit other stars. So we know there's a lots of thousands of planets out there. They are barren compared to the Earth. They are they could no way support any form of life.
So when we're talking evidence, yep. there isn't evidence at all for the alien uh, or with the alien uh, populations on other planets. There's none at all. But mm. uh, in some sense, you can you can uh, expect that there are going to be naturalist scientists who are going to look for that life. And so whether they're listening for sounds from outer space or having the opportunity to use the technology to actually get some samples from asteroids, we might expect that they will pursue that and we should be excited that they do. Uh, and this is something, just to touch on something very special here, because when we talk about these things, some people might be thinking, well, Christians, shouldn't we be fearful of talking about this? My suspicion is that we ought not, that we ought to be excited about talking about it, but we get to talk to someone like you, Scott, who can give us some insights into what the evidence is really saying. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think we talked about this, something similar to this, um, I think maybe last time I was on the show or before, but, and, and I think, yeah, you're asking, you know, what do you think of this? And, and yeah, it's really exciting that we're getting to do this. But so I guess our take on it as Christians is they're looking for, extraterrestrial life they're looking for how habitable exoplanets are how habitable other planets are and really um, what they found and, and there's this great quote from uh, one of the uh, one of the astronauts that was uh, the first to go i think it was like for the, the apollo mission that went around the moon before the guys that landed so they went about six months previous um they went on christmas eve and as they're going around the moon um he noticed the moon was a barren place. But then when they went around the moon, you might have seen this amazing shot. It's called Earthrise. It's a famous photo. And you can see the moon in the foreground and the earth um, kind of in the background. And he said the earth was this beautiful blue marble with greens and like just just beautiful place. It looks like it's got life on it. And he said the moon was a barren place. Um, and so... Yeah, when we're when we're looking what's out there, we see that the Earth is very very special, and I think that's the exciting thing for us as believers is as they do more and more research, the possibility of life being elsewhere gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer, and the habitability and the unique design of the Earth and our bodies and biology and the biology of our bodies becomes more and more amazing and God gets more and more glory. So this is an exciting thing for us. And the immediate evidence for God's creation is was where we're looking at one another or imagining that picture of uh, the beautiful earth in contrast to the barrenness of the moon and yes. uh, the evidence all around us. So the biblical wisdom here, Scott, that God created the heavens and the earth and humanity Adam and Eve, and a biblical account will say this is the way it happened. In some sense, people say you have to take a step of faith to believe that, given that there is a scientific naturalism that permeates all of our universities and people who are graduating are coming out with all sorts of evolutionary ideas. The Christian believer, though, has plenty of substance to stand on for appreciating that God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, and especially with uh, what we're finding out, um, and, and this is where I think uh, biology, um, molecular science, and uh, we, you know we've only we only mapped the full genome in 2003. And what is it? It's a, a code of three billion letters long that's specific. That's in every single cell, trilli- thir- over 30 trillion cells in our body. That codes in every single cell and tells our body what to do. So I think, yeah, I really think modern 
science, some of the discoveries are showing us how intricately we're made. And now we know that even within our cells, which you know, back in Darwin's time, we thought they were just a blob of jelly. And then as our microscopes developed, we can now see there's these miniature machines within cells that are 99.9% efficient, like motors that are 99.9% efficient, uh, things that we could never make. And you can see that it's clearly engineered. So I think a lot of modern science is, is very exciting for us as believers. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. What's your response to our conversation today? A question, a comment, an insight, even a critique is welcome. 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Scott Devlin. Scott is a geophysicist, speaker and writer for Creation Ministries International. We're talking about this latest development where there's been a sample that's taken from an asteroid. It's returned to Earth and there's a discovery of amino acids in that uh, that sample that's come from the Ryugu asteroid. Now, I want to not leave li- listeners sort of in the dark here or uh, wondering about where we're going with a conversation like this. Scott, what's the problem with the discovery of amino acids? Because scientists are getting excited about that as Christians putting this under the microscope. How do we look at these things? Yeah, so the reason they're excited about it is um, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, which are the building blocks of life. And, you know, often in the past, Neil, we've seen, oh, discovery of organic material um, in space or or from a celestial object. Now, uh, you know, you hear organic material and you think, well, it's living. Well, that's not quite true. Organic just means carbon-based. and this is maybe another step forward. Um, it's amino acids. Now, we have found amino acids on meteorites before, but there was always a chance that was from contamination. So when you look at a rock that lands on Earth, you know, has has that amino acid, has that been contaminated from the Earth's biosphere somehow as it's come through the atmosphere? But the chances are eliminated now because we have amino acids from an asteroid. And... Um, but, but the point here is that actually we know amino acids can spontaneously generate and that is was made clear by the famous Miller-Urey experiment. Now, I don't know about listeners, but a lot of people I speak to, they had that in their high school biology and they've heard of the Miller-Urey experiment, which claimed to form uh, amino acids. And in fact, it did out of um, just chemicals. So we know there's a possibility that amino acids can form. Now, amino acids, they're actually just very basic they're um, an amine and a carboxyl group. So it's actually just a, a little mix of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And so it's a molecule uh, that has these elements in, but it's not a long, complicated molecule. Now, just staying with that experiment for a few yep. moments, the Miller-Urey experiment, and some listeners might be familiar with that, you're suggesting that when that experiment was used in the textbooks in school, that mm. actually it was a little misleading mm. and there was a little more necessary for the abiogenesis. How do you explain that? Yeah, and so this relates directly to the amino acids on the asteroid as well. So Okay, so amino acids were created. They were created in a very uh, small concentration and not many were created. And a lot of very similar experiments have happened since because the Miller-Urey experiments were 1953, so it's a long time ago, but this experiment's been repeated many times. So a few amino acids were created, but amino acids are 
the building blocks for proteins, as we said, and proteins the building blocks of life. But the average protein has about 300 amino acids in and there's about 20 different proteogenic amino acids so 20 different types of amino acids make up proteins and if you think about it they there's a specific order to the amino acids in the proteins so if you've got a protein of 300 amino acids long and you've got to have the exact right amino acid in each place the chances of creating a protein out of amino acids becomes incredibly, incredibly small. So what I'm saying is, to summarize, is that amino acids are quite basic. And, yeah, maybe you've got a lightning strike or you've got a bolt of electricity as the Miller-Urey experiment and you get the exact right gases in the exact right concentrations and you can make this molecule, this simple molecule. But the coded information that's in a protein that comes from the coded information in our DNA originally, and that's how our bodies make proteins, is... It's, imp- it's impossible to happen by chance. And when you do the statistics, you find that. The impossibility of it happening by chance, and if it can be uh, constructed in a laboratory with the need of a scientist to be able to do the construction, that actually actually plays into the hands of what we understand, that there is a need for a designer for that life to happen. Any thoughts here on where God fits in the thought of a designer? And if humans can do that, well, perhaps you need a God to uh, to actually get right down to those core issues around what makes human life work. Yeah, no, and, and that's the point just there, Neil. I think it's a really good point is that actually synthetic chemists work very, very hard to make these simple molecules um, and they have to have the exact right conditions and there's a lot of intelligence in it. And then you say, okay, so this happened without intelligence at the beginning. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I wrote an article on creation.com on this particular asteroid and amino acids uh, creating a protein by chance. And I just showed some of the statistics, showed some of the probabilities of trying to get those amino acids lined up in the correct order in a protein. And you can see you start to get these huge numbers where it's one in the chance of 10 to the power of 77 of getting a protein lined up and so that's one in 10 with 76 noughts afterwards that's the chance and that's just one protein that's powerful stuff hey taking calls 1-800-316-316 you might have your own thoughts for our conversation today let's take a call bill is in north queensland hello bill welcome there you go. Hey, uh, just a quick one. Uh, I was sitting up late one night and I watched a movie and it last man it was or something. And anyway, two spaceships were fighting. The uh, major civilizations were into one another way out in space. And him and this other spaceship we got stuck into it and they shot one another down. They crashed not too far from one another. And he got his communications device working and he found out there was nobody left. They were the last two people, him and the pilot in the other spaceship. And when he went near it, somebody was shooting at him. And in the end, he said, look, look, we're the only two left. He said, please, don't shoot me. We're the only two left out of our civilizations. He said, come out and meet me. He said, we can never go home. And next minute, the door opened, and a beautiful Sheila stood at the door with a gun on him. And he said, oh, I'm Adam. He said, what's your name? She said, Eve. Mm. Mm. Okay. 
Um, Bill, you're making an interesting point here, and even into the realms now of science fiction and what the movies depict about how an Adam and Eve might be found. And uh, so it's an interesting way to draw uh, some connections there. But uh, what are your thoughts here, Scott, uh, for, for Bill? Yeah, I, I find it interesting, Bill, that the movie depicted the only two people left as Adam and Eve. And it shows that actually we still have that knowledge in our Western society that, oh, yeah, we we know the Genesis account that um, Adam and Eve were the first two people. And what I find really interesting, Bill, is that actually geneticists today have, when they look at the genomes of everyone living today and they look at the Y chromosomes of men, which was only passed down from father to son, father to son, um, and they look at the mitochondria of women, which is only passed down from mother to daughter, mother to daughter. They find in both of them that the mitochondria in all women living today are very, very similar. And their conclusion, because uh, they can map this back, because uh, their conclusion is that there was an originally one woman. That all women today are come from one woman and they call her mitochondrial eve <laughs> so although they don't believe in the biblical eve they still call um, her mitochondrial eve and the same's happen with the man which i think is incredible uh, they have found that with all we are all descended from one man and they call him y chromosome adam so similar to the movie there bill uh, the scientists of the, today are the geneticists have found that we're all descended from one man and one woman and they've used uh, biblical names for them Wonderful stuff. Bill, thank you so much for a good contribution there. And let's just touch on this a little more. Uh, Y chromosome Adam, X chromosome Eve. uh, Mitochondrial Eve. Mitochondrial Eve. So so all male and female, going back to common ancestors. Yes. And that is the biblical foundation for God's creation. Yes. Uh, Some people might have questions around the timing and how long that works. Is there any research that you're aware of about how long that takes to go back to mitochondrial Adam and Eve? Yeah, this is a really interesting point, Neil. Um, So, yeah, first of all, just to explain it a little bit more. So the mitochondria is a piece of DNA that exists uh, within the cytoplasm of the cell. So it's not actually part of the main genome within your, um, it's not part of your nuclear uh, genomic data. And that's the thing that gets passed down uh, from mother to daughter, mother to daughter. So everyone will understand you're a mix of your mum and your dad because you can see characteristics of your mum and your dad and that that shows in how you look. And we call that a phenotypic um, expression. But... um, yeah, the interesting thing is with the Y chromosome, as everyone knows, that's only in males. So therefore, the mixing doesn't happen. Now, the issue with all the mixing is because we've had generation upon generation upon generation, that it's very hard to look backwards. But with the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial DNA, it's much easier to look backwards. And anyone that's listening that's done a genetic test to find the heritage will recognize these terms. Um, and that's And they use this heavily. So sorry to your question the timing now this is really interesting because originally uh, when they were looking at this they said oh yeah you know mitochondrial uh, eve and y chromosome adam they placed them uh, in between about 100,000 and 200,000 years ago and of course they were at different times so you know they couldn't be the biblical even adam but as more studies came out it's the times have converged and converged and converged so the new studies come new studies come new studies come and now they reckon that adam and eve lived about the same time now it's still not the biblical timeline so but what's really interesting is 
the way they work out their timeline is by using a phylogenetic method. And what that means is that they believe we're closely related to apes. And therefore, they take the um, DNA of apes and they take the DNA of humans and they see how many differences there are. And then they say, okay, well, uh, we'll work out a mutation rate based on that. And so they get this mutation rate and then they use that to see how many differences are in humans today and map that back. And that's when they get somewhere between 100 and 200,000 years. But what we can now do is we now know, uh, we can now actually get people's genomes. So you can get a mother, a daughter, a grandmother, um, and you might be able to get a great grandmother. And you can actually uh, dig up bones of people and get the DNA and look at the mitochondria in their great-great-great-grandmother. And so what you can do is you can actually work out a real mutation rate. And when you do this, you get in the order of 5,000 years. And we're going to take some calls as we go. In fact, why don't we take another call just before we continue this part of our conversation, Scott? Let's take a call from Lawrence, who is in Perth, WA. Hi, Lawrence. Welcome. Oh, thank you for this morning. Yes, um, they said that the Aboriginal race is one of the oldest on Earth. You know, they quote sixty thousand years and so on. Could um, your guests explain about that, please? The Aboriginal race. Well, it's a little bit off topic, I think. Uh, but oh, your okay, thoughts yes. here, Scott, for uh, for uh, Lawrence? Yeah, Lawrence. I think it's an interesting question because, of course. Um, you know, I often hear it as a, a point of pride. You know, we're the oldest race, and it's something to be proud of. Um, but really, if you're believing in an evolutionary worldview, it's not something to be proud of. Like you're saying, okay, we're an earlier race, like we're a more primitive race. Um, and of course, that is not true. Um, and the truth is, we all came from Adam and Eve. We all descended from Adam and Eve. And when we look at the, Bible, the biblical account, we find that after the flood, there was the Tower of Babel. And that's where the different languages came from. And that's when people spread all over the earth. And it was at that point that... Um, people would have started spreading out. And so, and and, and one of the questions might be, well, where do you get these ages from? Um, And some of it is from radiometric dating. And that's another conversation there. But I would just suggest, look, go to creation.com, look at radiometric dating. Uh, Some of it's, yeah, radiometric dating of archaeological artifacts. But the key thing when you're looking at history here is written history only goes back about 5,000 years. Like it doesn't go back further than that. And so, Written history and archaeo- like um, archaeology that can be cross-referenced with other written history doesn't go back further than that. So when you're saying something is an artifact is sixty thousand years old, you're having to rely on naturalism and on radiometric dating. So I would yeah have a look at that on the website creation.com. Just look at radiometric dating, and of course it's not a thing to be proud of. The truth is we're all related. Uh, we're all related uh, through Adam and Eve, and. The interesting thing about this is to talk about genetics again is they've found that throughout every we've studied every genome now I mentioned 2003 was the first time they mapped one human genome and that cost three billion dollars now it costs less than a thousand dollars to map a whole genome and so we know because we've got genomes from all over the world we know that every human living today is 99.9% similar there's only a 0.1% difference between us all. And that shows we're all one human race. We're not um, 
different species. Lawrence, thank you so much for your call. An important call when you connect what's happening today and uh, the thought of being the oldest race on Earth, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island brothers and sisters, and connecting that into uh, the way we think about mitochondrial Adam and Eve. Wonderful stuff. Coming back to our focus on the asteroid and the amino acids that were gathered from the asteroid, we're talking a little bit about here the, uh, the, the naturalist perspective on how humanity got here. Let's talk about the Genesis account for a moment because we might be talking about their explanation and sometimes we can talk a lot of uh, conversation about their explanations. Uh, what's the creationist perspective, including all of this science we're talking about? Yes, so that was actually the question that I got asked. So uh, part of my job and my colleague's job is we get questions that are not easily found on our website. And one of the questions that came in was, look at this work. And the person asked that exact same question, how could have these amino acids formed on the asteroid? What's the creation perspective on this? And so um, so I've got the answer in the article uh, on creation.com forward slash asteroid. And I gave three possible answers. Now, you might think, well, hang on, just give us the correct answer. Well, <laughs> Just we, make it easy. It's, yeah. that's, but, there's, but three possibilities. In other words, you've thought through alternatives and you've framed those in a way that you can look at those three and come to a conclusion. Yes, and, and just to explain why there's three alternatives and why there's not just one, well, it, we're dealing with historical science here. Um, so how did these amino acids form? How did they get there? Well, no one was there to see and record what actually happened. And this is a key difference um, that uh, we try and make aware to people, especially when we speak in churches, is that there's a big difference between historical science and experimental science. Experimental science, there is one answer, and you can do the experiment again and again, and you get the same answer. It follows the scientific method. And that's the type of science that we have used to do great engineering feats that we've used to fly all over the world to put men on the moon to develop life-saving medicines and make the world's information available at the swipe of a finger that is and and that really people think well that's the only science there is and they think that's the same type of science that we're using uh, to tell you how old the earth is or how old the universe is well that's not quite the truth because historical science there's no one that actually it doesn't follow the scientific method um, and therefore, when I get asked a question like that, I am also delving in historical science. How did these amino acids get there? Well, no one recorded it. There isn't a historical document I can look up that says, I saw this protein fly out of wherever and then land on here and the amino acids have dispersed and now they're there. So, okay, so Scott, let's talk about these three possibilities here. And in relation to the Genesis account. Uh, give us your insights here on those three alternatives. Yeah, so so what I said was this. No, I said, one, either God created... So this is a possibility. God created um, the amino acids in place um, on the parent body of Ryugu. So Ryugu, it looks like it's been shattered from another parent body. So maybe it was a planet or, or whatever it was um, before. And those amino acids were created in place on day four of creation. So that's one possibility. The second one is, I said, well, the amino acids, they could have formed from UV irradiation of Raigu's constitute chemicals. So we know from the Miller-Urey experiment that um, with a large amount of electricity or a UV irradiation, something like this, we can 
create amino acids from basic chemicals. And the other possible scenario I said was that the amino acids were created by UV irradiation of chemicals found in interstellar dust grains in the middle of space, in the interstellar medium. And these grains were then transported to Ryugu. And actually, just as we were sitting here, I thought of a fourth one. And possibly um, there was a meteorite impact on Earth that caused a very big one in the past that caused ejecta to come from the Earth. And somehow these amino acids were preserved in the middle of this meteor that came from Earth and then hit at Ryugu. And, I mean, it's, it's a possibility. It sounds very far-fetched. Um, so so that. They're the possibilities. Interesting, isn't it, that people are always looking for a simplistic answer. And in some sense, uh, when we look at the Genesis account, we are getting a simplistic answer. It mm. can be uh, the historic account in Genesis that shows us, no matter what level of intelligence we have, that we can be confident that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and there is a creation account and day four, all of a sudden there's Adam and Eve, uh, a grown-up universe and an instant arrival of the fully formed woman and a man. For some people, that's a little too simple. And uh, the thought that there might be alternatives that you can look at, you have to get your head around some of the alternatives to actually be a part of the conversation. Yeah, and this is a good point. So I've been talking about historical science and history and written history. Now, if we're taking the Bible as inerrant, Neil, then we're saying it is. it says what it means and it means what it says. And when you look at, and so some parts we, we obviously know are written as allegory or metaphor, and that's within the context. But that when you read uh, Genesis 1 to 3, you can see clearly that it's uh, written as history. And uh, so... Yeah, a lot of people today, because of the influence of evolution, want to take it not written as history. Um, and they think because evolution is very well proved, then we have to do some theological backflips and take it not as history. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the work that we're trying to do um, with CMI is we're trying to show you that, no, this isn't proven science. This isn't experimental science. This is historical science. And there, and there are alternatives. And as you say... This is written history, and these are some of the things where we can give simple answers. We know that God did create the world. We know that he created the celestial bodies on day four. He created the sun, moon, and the stars because he says it, um, and we can trust his word. And, of course, those who have concerns about the history of those early chapters of Genesis uh, only have to look to the words of Jesus, who himself identifies and affirms the historic account in Genesis. Taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Chris in Melbourne. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Uh, good day, Neil and guest. Um, yeah, I just want to ask uh, your guest there, uh, what does he think of the fact that the scientists have found uh, the name of uh, God in the DNA, Yahweh, you know? So that should prove that if God created humanity, then um, he's created everything else. Interesting one, Chris. Are you across that one, Scott? I'm not, unfortunately. I haven't heard that before. I would have to look it up and take take a look at it. Chris, have you got any other detail there? So the name of God, uh, Yahweh. Yeah, like, like in the Hebrew sense, uh, Yah and Wei, uh, they, they found that in, in DNA. So uh, that's why I wanted to ask, the guest, if he's heard of that and uh, you know aware of that sort of yeah. 
Okay, so he's not so much across that. Uh, We might need to let that one go through to the keeper and listeners might like to Google that and find out some more detail as to the name of God in DNA. Chris, thank you so much for your call. Let me ask you about scientists and the way that they keep each other accountable. Uh, Sometimes we talk about uh, peer-reviewed journal articles. Uh, Maybe it's too early to have the sort of peer review that you might expect around the uh, amino acids being found on Ryugu. Uh, But what are your thoughts for the way those things might emerge now, Scott? Um, Yeah, I I think they've appeared in, I I can't remember, I'd have to check it, but I think it's appeared in the uh, Astrophysics Journal. Uh, It might have appeared in a few other journals. And... There's, of course, a lot of scientists uh, working at the Japanese Space Agency that have released work and papers on this. So uh, this work would have undergone a good bit of peer review anyway uh, already. But there is always um, the test of time. People can go back and look at old studies and um, refute them. Uh, There was actually an example in the article I wrote that I said, "Okay, look, the reason this is exciting is because we found it on an asteroid. And the Japanese Space Agency have built this world-class facility in Tokyo that will make sure no microbes bacteria or viruses can go in or out and so this is actually this facility NASA are even going to use it when they get their first sample from an asteroid in 2023 they're going to send their sample to there so the the uh, possibility of contamination has been drastically reduced by this world-class facility that and the Japanese space agency have built so I I think this is pretty good science and i think it's had some good peer review um but yeah it, as i was saying in the article i've pointed out that there has been um, amino acids found on meteorites that have later been disproved and said hang on this was contamination from the earth so we have to trust the integrity of the sorts of facilities that science scientists are building today uh, and then when the initial findings come out uh, we look at those and we hope that there is an adequate peer review on those so that what we're actually hearing has some level of evidence integrity. Yep. Uh, let me ask you, let's come back to the amino acids that were found on the Ryugu asteroid Uh, You've got a few concerns about those. Uh, Apparently there's 23 amino acids, and we already talked about the thought that it's more than just the amino acids that I have to mix together to actually create life. Uh, But there's something special about these amino acids. You describe it as left-handed and right-handed amino acids. How do we understand that, Scott? Yeah, so um, there's a term called uh, chirality, and the amino acids can be homochiral or they can be chiral. And and so the, the reason this is is because amino acids are a 3D molecule. So it's a carbon with four side chains. And because it's got this 3D shape to it, you can have it pointing in one direction or the other direction uh, when they join up in a protein. And what we find in all uh, biological proteins, so throughout our body, we find that proteins are all made up of left-handed amino acids but every amino acid that's been found and claimed to be from an extraterrestrial source that includes the ones found on Raigu and includes the ones found on various meteorites they've all um, been a a race mix mixture which means they're a mixture of left and handed exactly 50 50 or very close to 50 50 so when you um, and this is why out of those three possibilities i gave 
I then concluded, I said, I think because it's a mixture of 50-50, I don't think this is um, God-created biological material. I think that this is uh, being spontaneously generated um, through having the right gases in the right place. So what I'm saying is when you look at the proteins in your body, uh, they might be 300 amino acids long. Um, That's an average size protein. Every single one of those 300 amino acids is left-handed. Yet when we every experiment we've done to spontaneously generate amino acids and every extraterrestrial source of amino acids were found, you get 50-50 left and right-handed. You're not going to be able to create a protein with 50-50. You have to have one. And we can calculate the probability of this. And this adds into my probability argument, which says that, well, okay, if you've got a 300 length chain of amino acids and they all have to be left-handed and there's a 50-50 probability that you're going to get left-handed or right-handed well what that is that's a 50 percent chance to the power of 300 so that's 0.5 to the power of 300 that's a tiny tiny number it's it's yeah it's a tiny number and what it means is yes you can be excited about the discovery and the initial euphoria of a special discovery like this on an asteroid uh, is quickly brought down to a uh, you know down to earth in that sense uh, because when you recognize the complexity of what it takes uh, then that's nowhere near what it needs to be to have this thought that it can actually be the foundation of human life yes. or or any life. Uh, come back to this term we started talking about right at the beginning of our conversation, panspermia. So obviously there's excitement about amino acids on an asteroid, but it doesn't take us that close to understanding that somehow or other panspermia, uh, that life exists throughout the universe and it came to Earth on a meteorite. We still must be pretty sceptical about that. Yes, so we've found amino acids. They're basic molecules that can be spontaneously generated. They're not a protein. We have... It, it was first thought there's about 20,000 different proteins within our body. Now some people are estimating billions, billions of different types of proteins. And we all that we have that is possibly created by spontaneous generation is an amino acid. That's basic information. So it doesn't touch the information argument. So the argument for design is that the information is so complex, uh, so intricate, that there's no way that this could possibly happen through a spontaneous random chance and that that argument still holds because this is a very basic molecule we've created one building block of a protein we have not created the dna code or the rna code that can code for the protein that can tell we have this amazing system within cells where um the uh, the DNA transcribes to R- messenger RNA in the nucleus. It comes out of the nucleus and then it gets read by a ribosome, which puts the amino acids in the right order. We have this huge intelligent machine within every single cell of our body that puts amino acids in the right order. Now, you can't do that by accident. So that huge intelligence, we would say, is necessary for the formation of human life, even a single cell Uh, really comes down to our appreciation that what we can read in the book of Genesis, that God created the heavens and the earth, that he is the creator and he is the one we can tick the boxes and say intelligence required here. 
and tick the box because God is described as so great and his intellect so far profoundly beyond ours that he is the one who is able to uh, inaugurate that life as we know it. Scott Devlin is a geophysicist, speaker and writer for Creation Ministries International and Scott is known for modelling velocity analysis for ground-penetrating radar and working with neurosurgeons and neurologists to accurately image and navigate the human brain and spine. So when he's applying his intellect to these issues around what has been discovered on this asteroid, you might be interested in what he's got to say in the article. And it's all very well to listen to a conversation. You might be the sort of person who wants to read an article. There is an article that you can read on the creation.com website, so creation.com simply forward slash asteroid. Uh, have you been getting much feedback about your article, Scott? Uh, what sort of things are people saying? Yeah, good question. We had, uh, so all the articles we write on our website, um, we put a new one on there every day. Sometimes we have to put a repeat one, but we open it up for 14 days for people to write direct comments. So we don't keep it open forever. Otherwise, we'd be doing a lot of work in responding. And so we respond to all those comments and yeah i'm trying to remember some of the comments now oh i think so one good question i thought was um one person asked well if they're saying panspermia is true and meteorites came and brought um amino acids and proteins and maybe even living cells to the earth then how did it survive or how how did the living cells survive the entry into the earth and you might have seen as space shuttles come into the atmosphere of Earth, there's huge high high temperatures, very high temperatures that would destroy um, amino acids, proteins, living cells. And so in my answer, I, I went and looked up what the temperature was that we found that amino acids disintegrate at. And it was between 180 and 250 Celsius. So, so that's way too low of a temperature. It's thousands and thousands of Celsius that as you're re-entering the atmosphere so it's a good point and of course the answer the evolutionary answer to that is well they were buried very deep in the asteroid and that's how they survived but of course the the chances are very slim well a wonderful conversation today and i think at the end of it uh, we can all take heart uh, faith in god and his creation mm-hmm. still stands uh, without really being challenged by the thought that there is some uh, amino acids found on an asteroid so creation.com forward slash asteroid to find Scott Devlin's article. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.